Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast for teens and for parents of teens, a podcast to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum with thoughts, ideas, principles, stories, and questions all geared towards helping teenagers better follow Christ through their teenage years. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. This is Come Follow Me for Teens. I'm your host, Josh Downs. And uh, this week we're going to be taking a look at 2 Nephi, chapters 6 through 10, uh, under the theme, Oh, How Great the Plan of Our God. Uh, A lot in here, as always, so we're going to jump right in and get to it. Let's begin with the background of this week's study. It had been at least 40 years since Lehi's family left Jerusalem. They were in a strange new land, half a world away from Jerusalem. Lehi had died and his family had already started what would become a centuries-long contention between the Nephites, who believed in the warnings and the revelations of God, and the Lamanites, who did not. Jacob, who was Nephi's younger brother, was now ordained as a teacher for the Nephites and wanted the covenant people to know that God would never forget them, so they must never forget him. This is a message we surely need today. Let us remember him, for we are not cast off. Great are the promises of the Lord, Jacob declared. Among these promises, none is greater than the promise of an infinite atonement to overcome death and hell. Therefore, Jacob concluded, cheer up your hearts. This is a message that once again is tailor-made for us. There is no doubt that the Book of Mormon was written for our day because every single one of these things are things that we need to hear, things that we need to remember, things that we need to, to better understand and then apply in our lives to live a more full and happy and meaningful life. Now we're going to jump right into this week's three key principles. Principle number one, we're going to focus on chapter six and we're going to look at verses seven and 12 through 17. Now, the background of this particular principle and, and these chapters is that basically in chapter 6 through 8, Jacob is sharing some of the words of Isaiah with his people in hopes of helping them to have more confidence in God's plan for them, that God remembers his covenant people, that he will fight their battles for them and deliver them from their enemies. And all that he asks in return is for us to remember him and to do our best to keep his commandments and follow him. This is the central theme of these chapters of Isaiah that Jacob is sharing with his people. Well, in this message and in Isaiah's words is a phrase that I would like to point out and focus on, as I believe it is a key to finding happiness in this life and in the life to come. In referencing the Gentiles in the latter days and the wonderful things that God will do for both them, but also for his people today, any of those that are of the covenant the Lord points out a quality that will be found and exist in them. And it's mentioned at the end of verse 7, where he says, For they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. And I want you to mark that phrase. In a lot of ways, that phrase alludes to a lot of, of what we learned in the Tree of Life vision. The Lord's people, one of the things that distinguishes them from everyone else, is that they are not ashamed at partaking of the fruit, at traveling on the path, at holding on to the rod of iron. There may be an entire building full of other people that are pointing fingers and making fun of and chiding them and their entire journey forward towards the tree or towards Christ. But the quality that they all shared in their journey towards the tree and in remaining at the tree is that they were not ashamed. 
because they knew it was worth the wait. In verses 12 through 15, Jacob uses the words of Isaiah to teach them about God's power to deliver. In verse 12, he points out that the Lord God will fulfill his covenants, which he has made unto his children. In verse 14, and none will he destroy that believe in him. In verse 17, for the mighty God shall deliver his covenant people. And then the Lord points out once again this quality about his covenant people. In verse 13, and I want you to mark this as well, And the people of the Lord shall not be ashamed, for the people of the Lord are they who wait for him, for they still wait for the coming of the Messiah. The Lord's people have developed the ability to wait. And guess what, young people? So must you, especially at a young age. I remember a story that uh, President Uchtdorf taught uh, once in conference, one that I've, I've heard before and many of you are, are probably familiar with. It was about a study that was conducted that most everyone is familiar with that involved kids, marshmallows, and the ability to wait. He said that a select group of children had a marshmallow put in front of them and they were told that they could eat it right away or be given a bigger and better treat if they waited for an unspecified period of time. The facilitator then left the room and they watched behind a glass mirror what happened next. <laughs> now, to me, that sounds a little bit more like torture than to uh, some science experiment. But from this and subsequent studies, as well as watching the participants throughout the years that followed, science has been able to show that the ability to wait can be a key factor in the future success and even accomplishments of individuals. Which is all wonderful to know and understand, but really the challenge is for each of us that it is a part of our nature to not want to wait. We want what we want and we want it now. Doesn't it almost feel contrary to our nature to wait and to have to be patient for anything, especially in the world today? Now, I want each of you to think for just a moment about the last time that you had to wait for something. And I want you to consider how did you do at waiting for it? Whether it was standing in the line at the grocery store, maybe being caught in traffic, uh, waiting for, for pages to load on, on a computer or your cell phone, uh, for food to be made or, or delivered, or just waiting for the next episode of your favorite show. Uh, maybe for school to be over, for spring to come. There are so many opportunities each and every day that we have to wait. In a world that is continually pushing for us to wait less. It's now more important than ever for us to learn the value of patience. Scientific studies may help confirm this, but the value of patience and the dangers of instant gratification is something that's been taught in the scriptures and by the Lord since really the beginning of time. That This need to be patient and wait is illustrated really as far back as the story of Adam and Eve and the forbidden fruit. In fact, you can make the argument that all of Scripture, for the most part, is simply an exercise in God's children learning to develop patience and the ability to wait and to trust Him. Almost every story mentioned in scriptures worth mentioning has some element of patience woven through it. In a great cross-referencing scripture in Luke chapter 21, verse 19, Christ teaches this wonderful truth, In patience possess ye your souls. Isaiah references this in Isaiah 40, 31, when he says, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. 
there are some incredible and great promises that are given to those of us that have been able to develop the ability to wait. Now, how can any of us tell how we're doing? Well, our ability to wait and be patient is largely demonstrated by whether we choose to do things in the right way or the wrong way. Let me explain this. One of the most interesting stories in the Bible is about a group of people who tried to build a tower to get to heaven. It's referred to as the Tower of Babel. And after some time of them trying to build, the Lord became angry with them and changed their language. I remember thinking as a kid, why was he so upset with them? Wasn't it a good thing that uh, for them to want to get to heaven? It wasn't until much later that I learned a powerful lesson from this and other similar stories. And it's all about the ability to wait and do things in the right way. See, we all have things that we want, most of which are good. The question that we will end up answering through our actions is whether or not we are patient enough to get what we want in the right way. Or will we choose to get it in the always quicker, easier, and most often wrong way? C.S. Lewis, in his great book, Mere Christianity, says this, that evil when you examine it turns out to be the pursuit of goodness in the wrong way. And that is a profound statement. That evil when you examine it turns out to be the pursuit of something good, basically, just in the wrong way. Think about that for a minute. It wasn't wrong for those that built the tower to want to get to heaven, but it was in the way that they were doing it where the problem was. They were trying to do it in the wrong and easier way. Now, let me give you a personal example of this, especially for you young people, and I think many of you will probably be able to relate. When I was your age, I remember being in my, one of my math classes in school, and every day this particular teacher would start out class by going through the role and asking if we had completed our homework from the night before. And as a class, or, and as individuals, we would simply answer yes or no. We were then given points towards our grades accordingly. Completing our homework was really based on the honor system. Well, on one particular day, I recall that I had not completed my homework the night before. I don't remember all the reasons why I just didn't get it done. And as my name approached on that role, however, I remember struggling as to whether to say yes or no. I really wanted a good grade in that class, and so was tempted to say yes, that I completed it. And unfortunately, that desire overpowered my choice, to be honest. And so when it came time for me to report what I had completed on my homework, I reported yes, that I had completed it. I remember justifying it as well, that, oh, I will, I'll finish my homework later, or I'll only do it this one time, all just ways to justify the dishonest answer that I had just given. But imagine my horror when after the role had been taken and reports given that my teacher then asked for the first time for all the assignments to be passed forward. <laughs> she was spot-checking our work. I thought, man, are you kidding me of all the times to be dishonest? <laughs> well, at the end of the class, I was asked to stay after, and I knew exactly why. The guilt I felt confirmed it. My teacher asked why I had said yes to turning in my homework when I didn't have it to turn in. I, of course, didn't have a good answer, and things could have gone a lot, a lot of different ways. But looking back, I'm so thankful that I had a teacher that used that opportunity as a teaching moment. She discussed the importance of integrity with me and how she expected better from me. Well, all I know is I didn't like feeling that way and feeling like I had let her down. And so I remember walking away from that experience with a greater resolve to be better 
and to get my work done and to be honest if I didn't. I've remembered and reflected on that experience many times over the years when I've been in similar situations where I was tempted to cut corners, to do things the easy way. Now, as I mentioned, we all have things that we want. And young people, I know you especially do as well. The whole world is in front of you. And it's so exciting. There's so many opportunities. And to make matters worse, you are living in a world where patience takes too long to have or to develop. We literally live in a world where we are becoming accustomed to instant gratification, instant answers, instant access. It can be so easy in so many situations to cut corners. I want you to think about all the things you're trying to pursue in your life and that you will pursue in your life. Things like friends and popularity or beauty, good grades in school, wealth eventually, acceptance, health, relationships, boyfriends, girlfriends, success, recognition and most of all, happiness. Now just try to imagine to yourself for a moment all the ways and opportunities that exist out there to cut corners, to get any of these things quickly. If you want good grades, you can do the work and put the time in to get them in the right way, or, well, you can always cheat to get good grades to try to get them quickly. Instead of doing things in the right way, you can always lie and steal to get money or other things more quickly. You can put others down to make yourself look better quickly. You can cut corners to speed up success. You can use steroids to get big. You can be immoral to feel close to someone quickly. You can turn to a, a number of different quick fixes to feel good instantly. But none of these things lead to good things. Most of the terrible stories, in fact, on the news, if you'll watch and pay attention every day, are about those that choose to cut corners in trying to get good things in the wrong way, in the quick way, in the easy way. Do you see why the Lord's people are those that are willing to wait for Him? So here's a thought then that might be worth considering, especially given the light of how important it is to develop the ability to wait. If we feel that God isn't granting our desires quick enough or answering our prayers and requests as quickly as what we'd like Him to, Maybe it isn't a sign that he doesn't care about us as much as it is a sign of just how much he cares and that he is helping us to learn this most valuable lesson of waiting. Christ, as always, was the perfect example of doing things in the right way, waiting patiently for the right time. And maybe nowhere is this more clearly taught than when Christ was tempted by Satan in the wilderness while fasting just prior to starting his mission. The Savior shows us in his responses to those temptations his desire to do things in the right way and the perfect pattern for us to follow. In his first temptation by Satan, Satan told him to turn the rocks around him to bread so that he could eat. A simple miracle, something that he could have easily done. In his second temptation, he was taken to the top of a temple and told by Satan to cast himself off and that the angels would catch him and everyone would know that he was the Son of God. And in his final temptation, Christ was shown by Satan all the kingdoms and treasures and riches of the earth and all of which Satan said he would give him if Christ would fall down and worship him. Now in each of these temptations, he told Satan that he would not do it and to depart from him. Let's look back at each of these just a little bit closer. After all, didn't the Savior want to eat? And isn't eating a good thing? What was wrong with that? And didn't he want followers? Isn't that what he came here to do and to gain and acquire? And doesn't he want to be king and ruler over this earth? Isn't that his eventual right and destiny at one point, at some point? Well, of course he did, but not in the way that was presented to him. 
and not at that particular point in time, not by cutting corners. Of course, he wanted to eat again, but not right then. He was still fasting, and so he would complete his fast first. Of course, he wanted followers, but not in that way. He wanted to win their hearts and for others to choose to follow him one person at a time for the right reasons. Gaining followers was going to be a process that would take patience and some time, but that would produce some of the most devoted disciples that this world has ever known. Of course, it's his right and place to rule and reign over this earth, and he certainly will someday, but it wasn't his time for that. He was to be given all that the Father has by doing his Father's will first completing his mission, and performing all that he had to do in humility, in love, in patience, and in time. Having done that, when he comes again, it won't be as a carpenter in a manger, but in the clouds as the king of kings and ruler over all the earth. He was in all things the ultimate example of always doing things in the right way, waiting patiently for the right time. Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf, in a wonderful talk speaking on this uh, called Continue in Patience, he said, The children of Israel waited 40 years in the wilderness before they could enter the promised land. Jacob waited seven long years for Rachel. The Jews waited 70 years in Babylon before they could return to rebuild the temple. The Nephites waited for a sign of Christ's birth, even knowing that if the sign didn't come, they would perish. Joseph Smith's trials in Liberty Jail caused even the prophet of God to wonder, how long? In each case, Heavenly Father had a purpose in requiring that His children wait. Every one of us, He said, is called to wait in our own way. We wait for answers to prayers. We wait for things which at the time may appear so right and so good to us that we can't possibly imagine why Heavenly Father would delay the answer. Well, patient means staying with something until the end. It means delaying immediate gratification for future blessings. It means reigning in anger and holding back the unkind word. It means resisting evil even when it appears to be making others rich. Patient means accepting that which cannot be changed and facing it with courage and grace and faith. It means being willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon us, even as a child does submit to his father. Ultimately, patience means being firm and steadfast and immovable, in keeping the commandments of the Lord every hour of every day, even when it's hard to do so. Patience is a process of perfection. <laughs> I love President Uchtdorf. And for all you young people out there, let me put it to you this way, in a way that uh, you may connect with even a little bit more. A, a wonderful individual by the name of Dumbledore <laughs> said it this way in the Harry Potter series. He said, Dark and difficult times lie ahead. And soon we must all face the choice between what is right and what is easy. Notice he didn't say what is right and what is wrong. I love that he said what is right and what is easy. Because most often, what is wrong is also easy. Now some questions for you to consider. Number one, why is it so hard to wait? Just consider that for a moment. Why is it so hard to wait? What opportunities do you have to wait and practice patience in every day. And then as a little bit of a self-reflection question, how are you doing in practicing that patience while you wait? Why do you think patience and the ability to wait is such an important part of Heavenly Father's plan for us? And how have you been asked by the Lord to wait for things in the past? Do you see any reasons why now looking back you are asked to wait? 
How has this particular experience helped you to develop patience? How is the Lord asking you to wait now? What things are you praying for? What blessings are you asking for that aren't happening as fast as what you would like for them to? How can you practice more patience right now and better wait for them? How is waiting tied to trusting? And can you give any examples from your life or the life of someone you know that illustrates the danger of cutting corners and trying to get good things in the wrong way or in the easy way? Now for principle two, we're going to focus on chapter 9, verses 6 and 28. There are two phrases that I want you to go in and and mark in these two verses. The first one in verse 6, I want you to mark the merciful plan of the great creator. And then in verse 28, I want you to mark, oh, the cunning plan of the evil one. Throughout this entire chapter, in chapter 9, Jacob basically teaches us all about God's plan of salvation and Satan's plan of attack. He reminds us of God's goodness in preparing a way for us to escape both death and hell through the atonement of His Son, and that how without it we are all lost. And this is a wonderful place to take a look at Elder Holland's story and video, if you remember it, of the two brothers that were climbing a cliff, and one got caught at the edge of the cliff without really any hope of being able to make it to the top, and decided to make one last leap to try to get there, while his other brother, who he had helped get to the top, went looking for a stick to help him, knowing that there was not going to be anything there that he could use, and not wanting his little brother to see him fall. But yet, the amazing way in which his younger brother does end up saving his older brother, who was stuck at the edge of a cliff, it's a wonderful example and analogy that can be included here to kind of help us to to see the incredible blessing that the Savior and His Atonement is to each of us in rescuing us from our choices and from the terrible monsters of death and hell and from all that Satan is doing to try to entrap us. Jacob, speaking of this, warns all of us here of Satan's lies, of his deceptions, and all the various ways that he tries to entrap us in sin. He counsels us on how to best follow God's plan and the Savior in order to prepare ourselves for that day when we'll have to give an accounting of our lives and our choices. There's so many great verses in here. This chapter 9 is an amazing chapter. And again, you can just go and read anywhere. If you're teaching it, you can send your students anywhere in this chapter and just have them pull out truths about God's plan or Satan's plan of attack and discuss each. But there's one truth that I want to focus on for this next principle. And it is found in chapter 9, verses 8 through 9. And in a lot of ways speaks of Lucifer's strategy to deceive us as a whole. And the verses read as follows, starting with verse 8. O the wisdom of God, his mercy and grace. For behold, if the flesh should rise no more, our spirits must become subject to that angel who fell from before the presence of the eternal God and became the devil to rise no more. And our spirits must have become alike unto him. And we become devils, angels to a devil to be shut out from the presence of our God and remain with the Father of lies in misery, like unto himself, yea, to that being who beguiled our first parents, who transformeth himself nigh unto an angel of light, and stirreth up the children of men into secret combinations of murder and all manner of secret works of darkness. Now, do you notice what Jacob points out about what Satan has the ability to do in verse 9? I want you to mark this phrase, 
who transformeth himself nigh unto an angel of light. Now, why in the world would he try to transform himself into an angel of light? Well, because he wants to get as close as he can to the real thing in order to deceive us, in order to trick us. And I think we see this no better than in Moses chapter 1 in the Pearl of Great Price, where after Moses has this incredible experience with God, guess who comes knocking on his door immediately after? But Satan. And I want you to consider, how do you think he appeared to Moses? A lot of times we picture him in dark clothing and beady red eyes and speaking in an evil voice, Moses, thou son of man, worship me. No, Satan is way too smart for that approach, especially after Moses had just experienced being with God. I am sure that he appeared to Moses as an angel of light and spoke as gently and as softly as he could. Moses, thou son of man, worship me. He wanted to deceive Moses. After all, he's referred to as the great deceiver. That's how he gets us. He convinces us that his way is better, that it's quicker, that it's faster, that there is no consequence, that there's no sin, that good is evil and evil is good. He's been perfecting this approach for thousands of years. So the question that I want to pose to you is, how are you going to detect him? Now, this is especially important for you young people. So let me tell you of an experience that I had that might shed a little light on how to best detect Satan as an angel of light whenever he comes knocking on your door. Now years ago when I was growing up and back in school, I had a favorite comfort food and that food was Captain Crunch. (laughs) I, I think I was first introduced to it by my grandmother as it was her most favorite cereal and food as, as well. Every time I went to her house, I would go straight to the cupboard where she kept it, pour myself a large bowl, and make my way to the TV. Well, eventually that would become my end of the school day routine for years to come as Captain Crunch became a staple at my house. I would come home from a long, hard day at school, walk in and give my mom a hug and kiss and go right for the Captain Crunch. And I would grab a bowl. And I'm not talking about some sissy bowl that I could hold in one hand, but a Tupperware size bowl that, you know, you could easily have sit in your lap. (laughs) A quarter of the box and a quarter of a gallon of milk later, and I was on my way to the TV. And there I would decompress from the day, just me and my giant bowl of Captain Crunch. (laughs) I remember on one occasion that I discovered that we were out of Captain Crunch when I arrived home, and that was a traumatic experience for me. However, thankfully, my mother was heading to the grocery store right then, and so I reminded her to make sure to get some, and then I had to wait patiently for her to come back. Speaking of waiting, right, that was a test for me. Now, on this particular occasion, come to find out as my mother was walking down the cereal aisle in the store that she was at to grab some Captain Crunch, she noticed that at the time, there was a new section that had just been put into the cereal aisle, a section that didn't contain any boxes. All the cereal that was in this section were in bags. And upon closer inspection, she realized two things. One, that the cereal in the bags was made to mimic other popular cereal brands. And two, they were significantly cheaper than the normal box cereal were. And then I'm sure she saw it a knockoff of Captain Crunch. The cereal was the same color and shape and even had Crunch in its name. I think it was Colossal Crunch or something. And sure enough, it was even cheaper than a box of original Captain Crunch was. And there was even a lot more that came with it. 
Well, I can just see my mother doing the math in her head of how much money she could save over the life of her son by getting him to switch to Colossal Crunch. But she knew it wouldn't be quite so simple as just swapping out the cereal. So she came up with a plan. Upon arriving home, I came running upstairs saying, Hey, Mom, did you get my Captain Crunch? The wait I thought was over. Well, she replied, Yeah, I did, but uh, let me bring it to you. And I remember being a bit puzzled by her response, but I said, uh, Okay. And I went away thinking, Wow, what a great and amazing mom I have. <laughs> well, my mother then got me a bowl of not Captain Crunch, but of Colossal Crunch. Bringing it downstairs and handing it to me, I said, Thanks, Mom. And she said, You're welcome, and began to walk away. I'm sure smiling, thinking that she had pulled off quite the accomplishment. However, she had only got a few steps up the stairs until she heard me call out, Uh, Mom? Yeah, she said. Um, there's something wrong here with my <laughs> Captain Crunch. Something wrong, she said. What do you mean? Well, I don't know. It, it tastes funny. It's getting soggy a little too fast. And in fact, looking a little bit closer at it, I've noticed that each piece is missing those little ridges that are specifically designed to help keep its crunch. <laughs> That's how well I knew my Captain Crunch. Well, it didn't take long for her to confess what she had done. To which I replied, Mom, how could you? How could you do this to me? And I sent her back to the store for the real thing. No, just kidding. I wouldn't do that to my mom. But the question that I want to ask you from this story and experience is how was I able to tell the difference so quickly between the two? And if you answered because of how much and how recently I had eaten the real thing in Captain Crunch, you would be correct. Now, do you see the message in this experience? I would imagine that you guys have probably had similar experiences with the knockoff or imitation of something. The, the principle is simply this. The more that we eat of the real thing, the easier it will be to detect the imitation. Do you know how Moses was able to detect Satan so easily, although he appeared to him as an angel of light? In Moses chapter 1, verse 15, Moses points this out. He says, Blessed be the name of my God, for his spirit hath not altogether withdrawn from me. Or else, where is thy glory? For it is darkness unto me, and I can judge between thee and God. For God said unto me, Worship God, for him only shalt thou serve. Get thee hence, Satan, deceive me not. In other words, I hear him saying, I just got through eating a big bowl of Captain Crunch, and it was amazing, and it was awesome, and you are not that. His spirit has not left me yet. That taste has not left my mouth. And I can tell the difference because, again, I've just recently felt of God's spirit. And you feel different. In fact, the prophet Mormon, as a young person, as another example, grew up in one of the most wicked times in all of not just the Nephite civilization's history, but all the earth's history. And he points out that ever since he was a young person, ever since he was old enough to behold the ways of man, that there was a scene of wickedness that was before his eyes continually. Now, how in the world did he turn out the way that he did, having that shoved in his face constantly, living in such a wicked world? Well, as a young person, he records this in Mormon chapter 1, and think about how it relates to what we're talking about. In verse 15, he writes, And I, being fifteen years of age, and being somewhat of a sober mind, therefore I was visited of the Lord, and tasted and knew of the goodness of Jesus. He had tasted from his youth the real thing, 
so that he was always able to tell the difference between God's promises and Satan's. Now, fishing, for the most part, let me shift gears for just a moment. Fishing, for the most part, is the art of deception, creating a lure that is so close to the real thing that a fish won't be able to tell the difference. But there is a reason why still the biggest fish are the hardest to catch. And it's because they have eaten more of the real thing than the young ones have. And so it's harder to deceive them. Do you see the lesson here? This also comes with a warning because guess which fish are the easiest and most common to catch? It's the little ones. It's the young ones. And if you don't think Satan knows this, young people, you are mistaken. There is a reason that you as young people are being targeted by smoking companies, by vaping companies, by alcohol and drug companies. There's a reason why immorality is being thrown in your face constantly and the promise and the lure of fame and fortune is all over social media. You are being targeted by him. How can you avoid his deceptions, his promises of instant happiness and instant gratification and instant success and instant friends and instant everything else? Well, as a young person, you must taste of the goodness of Jesus as often as you can. It becomes more important than ever to read your scriptures daily, to attend church, to fully participate in seminary when you're there, to go to FSY, to go to young men's and young women's camps, and to trek when you have those opportunities when they present themselves, to support your parents in holding family prayer and family home evenings and lessons. That's how you beat him. That's how you detect him. Now, there is one other way that Satan can be detected as well when he tries to closely mimic what is good. Listen to what Joseph Smith says about his experience early on in the church's restoration with Satan. Now, most of the time we've read and just kind of skim over this verse, and we, I don't think we catch what is also being taught because we don't have a lot more information about this particular experience. But in sharing his feelings towards the end of his life, and gratitude and testimony of the restored gospel. Joseph says in Doctrine and Covenants verses, uh, section 128, verse 20, he writes, And again, what do we hear? Glad tidings from Camorah, Moroni, an angel from heaven, declaring the fulfillment of the prophets, the book to be revealed, a voice of the Lord in the wilderness of Fayette, Seneca County, declaring the three witnesses to bear record of the book. The voice of Michael on the banks of the Susquehanna detecting the devil when he appeared as an angel of light. The voice of Peter, James, and John in the wilderness between Harmony, Susquehanna County, and Colesville, and Broome County on the Susquehanna River declaring themselves in possessing the keys of the kingdom and of the dispensation of the fullness of times. And he goes on to list some other things that have happened that are amazing and miraculous and wonderful. But did you catch what he alluded to that happened to him on the banks of the Susquehanna. That at some point, there was an experience that they had where the voice of Michael, or Adam, on the banks of the Susquehanna came to them to help them detect the devil when he appeared as an angel of light. <laughs> now, the reason for that is most likely because Joseph was probably too young and inexperienced at that point in his growth and, and role as prophet and restorer of the Lord's church and gospel to the earth to see through Satan's attempted deception. So he needed help. And so how was Satan detected and his deception revealed? Through the voice of another. 
through the voice of one that had experience with Satan. Michael or Adam knew him well. Now, young people, I want you to consider, who do you have in your life that you can trust to warn you when Satan is trying to deceive you? I want you to think of those people and resolve to listen to them, to trust them. They have the experience that you do not. They have become familiar with his lies, with Satan's methods and deceptions, and they will keep you safe until you can detect him more easily yourself from eating enough of the real thing and tasting of the goodness of Jesus. So listen to your parents, listen to your leaders, listen to the prophet, and you will be protected from Satan's attempts to trick you, to deceive you, and to ensnare you in his traps. Elder L. Tom Perry taught on one occasion that that old enemy of all mankind has found as many devices as he can think of to scatter tares far and wide. He has found ways to have them penetrate even the sanctity of our own home. The wicked and worldly ways have become so widespread there seems to be no real way of weeding them out. They come by wire and through the air into the very devices we have developed to educate and entertain us. The wheat and the tares have grown close together. A steward managing the field must, with all of his or her power, nourish that which is good and make it so strong and beautiful that the tares will have no appeal either to the eye or to the ear. How blessed are we as members of the Lord's Church to have the precious gospel of our Lord and Savior as a foundation on which we can build our lives. In another conference talk, President Dieter F. Uchtdorf taught this, that one of the adversary's methods to prevent us from progressing is to confuse us about who we really are and what we really desire. We want to spend time with our children, but we also want to engage in our favorite hobbies. We want to lose weight, but we also want to enjoy the foods we crave. We want to become Christ-like, but we also want to give the guy who cuts us off in traffic a piece of our mind. (laughs) Satan's purpose is to tempt us to exchange the priceless pearls of true happiness and eternal values for a fake plastic trinket that is merely an illusion and counterfeit of happiness and joy. And lastly, Elder Dallin H. Oaks taught this, that spiritual food is necessary for spiritual survival, especially in a world that is moving away from belief in God and the absolutes of right and wrong. In an age dominated by the internet, which magnifies messages that menace faith, we must increase our exposure to spiritual truth in order to strengthen our faith and stay rooted in the gospel. Young people, if that teaching seems too general, here is a specific example. If the emblems of the sacrament are being passed and you are texting or whispering or playing video games or doing anything else to deny yourself essential spiritual food, or I might add, to help you taste of the goodness of Jesus. You are severing your spiritual roots and moving yourself towards stony ground. You are making yourself vulnerable to withering away when you encounter tribulation like isolation, intimidation, or ridicule. And that applies to adults also. Even President Nielsen recently reminded us that in the coming days it will not be possible to survive spiritually without the guiding, directing, comforting, and constant influence of the Holy Ghost. In other words, in order to survive Satan's deceptions, it will become paramount that we taste of the goodness of Jesus daily. Now, a couple key questions for you on this. Number one, how have you seen Satan's deceptions in the world today? And how have you seen him targeting the young? 
How have you seen him try to mimic that which is good? What has helped you best to detect him, to detect his lies and his methods the most in your life? Who do you have in your life that has been that voice of warning to you that has helped you to detect him? And where or how have you personally been able to taste of the goodness of Jesus the most in your life? How has eating of the real thing helped you to best detect the imitation? And what can you do to make sure you are eating more of the real thing each and every day? Now, to conclude with our third and final principle, I want to focus briefly on Jacob's counsel that he gives that really ties all of this together. He summarizes God's plan and Satan's plan of attack and how to navigate them both in one single statement of truth. And it's found in chapter 9, verse 39. And I want you to read through it until you get to this phrase, and then I want you to mark it. And the phrase is this, Remember, to be carnally minded is death and to be spiritually minded is life eternal. Now to emphasize this principle, there is a story that is told of a wise old Cherokee chief who is having a conversation with his grandson, and he's trying to teach him a valuable lesson about life. In the story, he tells him, My son, there is a fight going on inside of me, and it is a terrible fight, and it is between two wolves. One is evil. And he is anger and envy and sorrow and regret and greed and arrogance and self-pity and guilt and resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. He continued, the other is good. And he is joy and peace and love and hope and serenity and humility and kindness, benevolence and empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. And the same fight is going on inside you and inside every other person too. Well, the grandson thought about it for a minute then asked his grandfather, Well, grandfather, which wolf will win? To which the old Cherokee simply replied, And here's the lesson. The one you feed. Now, as simple as that statement is, it is also profound and worth repeating. Which wolf will win inside of us? The one you feed. Now, two quick thoughts on this. First, it's important to recognize and acknowledge the fight, that there is good and evil in each of us. God teaches clearly in scriptures that from the time we're born in this world, that sin begins to conceive in the heart. And that references in Moses 6, verse 55. Young people, as wonderful as you might think you are, and as you are, or as wonderful as you are trying to be, To turn a blind eye to the darkness and the evil that's inside of us, which sometimes we tend to do instead of acknowledging it, leaves our guard and defenses down, and we open ourselves up to further attacks. So recognize the evil. See it for what it is. Understand that it's in everyone. And doing so will lead to a couple of key outcomes. First, acknowledging this will help us to be more patient with both ourselves and others. Because there is a fight going on in each and every one of us. While also creating a greater sense of urgency to feed more of that which is good in us. And second, of course, you've heard the phrase, you are what you eat. Well, while there is certainly a lot of truth to that as it relates to us physically, it really can't be overstated just how much that applies to us mentally, emotionally, and spiritually as well. And so the question I pose to you 
is do you guard your mind with vigilance and attentiveness to whatever it is that you allow yourself to consume in it? Studies show that the, the average person will spend between 7 to 10 years of their lives watching TV, and that by the time you are 18, studies show that most teenagers will have witnessed over 200,000 acts of violence just from watching television. Now, along with that, think of all the other potential dangerous things that we allow into our minds through things like video games or music and social media. Are we really aware of what we're consuming and what part of us it's feeding? If not, let me offer you another experience that I had once that you can maybe relate to that helped me to see what I couldn't see about what I was allowing into my mind and what it was feeding. It was an experience I had back when I was married and my children were just little. A new video game had just come out and I wanted to play it after work for a bit, just kind of as a way to unwind. And so I did for a few days. Until one day while I was playing this particular game, my sweet little daughter Brooklyn came up to me and said or did something that was annoying to me because she was doing it right in the middle of my game, right while I was playing. And to be honest, I don't remember what it was that she said or did. But what I won't forget and can't forget is the hurt look on her face after I snapped at her for saying or doing it. As I watched her walk away, it didn't take me long to realize that I didn't like that side of myself. I recognized that I had been feeling a little more agitated than what I normally did and and a little less patient. And it wasn't hard for me to make the connection that it most likely was coming from playing this particular intense game. So I cut it out as a means of unwinding right after work and instead committed to, to playing something a little less intense. I decided to play Tea Party with my daughter instead. I basically traded in shooting guns online to sipping a pretend beverage from a little cup with flowers on it while sitting in a chair that I could barely fit in. Funny thing though, now that Brooklyn is older, I don't regret the time that I missed playing that game at all. But all those moments that I would have missed playing Tea Party with her because of that game, well, they are now some of my most cherished memories that I wouldn't trade for the world. Now, I wanted to share that story and experience with you as a way of, of helping to encourage you to kind of watch whatever it is that you're allowing into your mind and into your life as well, what it is that you might be feeding. If you notice a rise in aggression or depression or self-pity or greed or envy or any other of a hundred thousand other negative things, I would suggest the first thing that you do is to look at where the source of food might be coming from that is feeding that part of you. If you want to cut off those feelings, cut off their food supply and instead replace them with food that feels good to the soul. There is a difference in my attitude, disposition, level of patience and joy, to just to name a a few things. After doing things like going on a walk or reading something that's uplifting or playing a game with my children or listening to positive audio or serving or praying or other similar activities. So make sure that you are feeding the good wolf inside of you as much as you can and certainly more than you're feeding the bad one. One of the things I love most about this story is that really no matter how dire the situation is or how powerful that bad wolf may have seemed to become, as long as there is any fight left in the good wolf, he can always still win out. We just need to remember the message of the story that the one that will win in the end is the one that gets fed. So feed it. President Nielsen taught this truth in a powerful way this last general conference when he said, Here is the great news of God's plan. 
The very things that will make your mortal life the best it can be are exactly the same things that will make your life throughout all eternity the best it can be. And so today, to assist you to qualify for the rich blessings of Heavenly Father that He has for you, I invite you to adopt the practice of thinking celestial or feeding the good wolf inside of you. Thinking celestial, he said, means being spiritually minded. We learn from the Book of Mormon and from the prophet Jacob that to be spiritually minded is life eternal. Mortality is a master class in learning to choose the things of greatest import. Far too many people live as though this life is all there is. However, your choices today will determine three things. Where you will live throughout all eternity, the kind of body with which you'll be resurrected, and those with whom you will live forever. So think celestial. When you're confronted with a dilemma, think celestial. When tested by temptation, think celestial. When life or loved loved ones let you down, think celestial. When someone dies prematurely, think celestial. When someone lingers with a devastating illness, think celestial. When the pressures of life crowd in upon you, think celestial. As you recover from an accident or injury, as I'm doing now, think celestial. As you think celestial, you will find yourself avoiding anything that robs you of your agency. Thinking celestial will also help you obey the law of chastity. As you think celestial, you will view your trials and oppositions in a new light. When someone you love attacks truth, think celestial and don't question your testimony. As you think celestial, your faith will increase. There is no end to the adversary's deceptions. Please be prepared. Never take counsel from those who do not believe. Seek guidance from voices you can trust, from prophets, seers, and revelators, and from the whisperings of the Holy Ghost, who will show unto you all things what ye should do. Please do the spiritual work to increase your capacity to receive personal revelation. Boy, doesn't that just beautifully tie everything that we've looked at and talked about today together. Now, a few key questions to end on today. Number one is, what does it look like when a person is carnally minded? Are there signs that you can look for in the way that a person lives their life or even just how they appear physically? Number two, what does it look like when a person is spiritually minded? Are there similar signs and things to look for to tell when a person is thinking in that way? How can you tell where you are in either? How can you tell what direction you are moving in? And what does it mean to you to think celestial? What are some things in your life that make it hard to think celestial? What is one change that you can make to better feed the good wolf inside of you and better think celestial? What is one thing that you can cut out more of in your life to help you stop feeding the bad wolf in you and think a little less celestial? What will happen the more that you feed the good inside of you? And this is a good question to consider. I want you to consider, why do you think feeding the good wolf is a better approach when it comes to getting rid of the bad inside of us than is starving the bad wolf? A lot of times we just want to see the bad cut out of a person's life, whether it's somebody else that we know and love or even ourselves. And that may not always be the easiest or even the best approach. So again, consider, might it be a better approach to feed the good than it is to cut out the bad? Uh, How have you felt when you've made choices that were in alignment with thinking celestial 
And how have you felt when you've made choices that were not in alignment with thinking celestial? President Ezra Taft Benson said that some of the greatest battles will be fought within the silent chambers of your own soul. Now, I don't know what each of you are going through or where you are in that battle between good and evil that is taking place inside of you. I just know that it is. And because of that, I know that there will be times where you will feel frustrated, where you'll be discouraged, where you will be down because maybe you just feel like you're not ever going to be able to overcome this bad wolf that's inside of you. This is the fight of a lifetime. And there will be times where that bad wolf will get the best of us. But in those moments, I want you to remember one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite characters in all of movies, an individual by the name of Rocky who when trying to teach his son about how to win at life, he said, it's not about how hard you hit, but about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Please remember, young people, that the atonement isn't for the perfect. It is for the perfecting of the imperfect. Our job is to just keep going, to keep fighting, and to keep doing our best to follow Christ and above all, to think celestial. And as always, please remember that the transcript, the study and teaching guide, and the Come Follow Me membership subscription, which will give you access to both, as well as to an early release for next week's lesson, can all be accessed from the link in the show notes, as well as on my website at joshdowns.com under Come Follow Me for Teens. As always, I appreciate all of your support. I hope this has been helpful to you, and I hope that you have an amazing week of study and applying the principles and truths from this week's material. If there's anybody that you know of that you feel could benefit from this podcast, please share it with them. Send them a copy of of this episode or to the show in general. As always, remember that that person is greatest and most blessed and joyful whose life most closely approaches the pattern of the Christ. This has nothing to do with earthly wealth, power, prestige, because the only true test of greatness, blessedness, joyfulness, is how close a life can come to being like the Master Jesus Christ. He is the right way, the full truth, and the abundant life, and the real thing. And he invites us all to come follow me. So let's follow him better this week and become better as we follow him. Until next week, everyone, I'm Josh Downs, and you've been listening to Come Follow Me for Teens.